Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. The last handful of months have really given me an opportunity to appreciate the world of endurance training, especially the ultra distance world of running. The training, and more impressive, the mindset involved in order to willingly push your body to extreme distances takes a special kind of person. Today, my guest is James Peratt, and he is one of these people. James runs one of my favorite accounts on all of Instagram, Wild Hunt Conditioning. He takes readers on a historical journey of all manner of strength cultures throughout time. He is also an avid endurance athlete actually holding a Guinness World Record that we get into in this conversation. In today's episode, we get into all kinds of conversation that's a blast, including ancient strength cultures, ultra running, James's world record run, persistence hunting, the day he deadlifted 500 pounds and ran 50 miles on the same day, bear hunting, and how his teenage years influenced his perspective on hardship. Enjoy this episode of the Nomad Strength Show with James Peratt. Joined today by my friend James Peratt, Wild Hunt Conditioning. Uh, James and I have been uh, like IG friends. I don't know. Like that's kind of what so many relationships start out as for me nowadays. But uh, started there because I really loved the the cool historical training write-ups that you do on the page. Because um, I'm an old, old school training history kind of nerd as well. So I love that was what drew me in immediately. And then we actually ended up having... Uh, the cool chance to be able to to roll together a little bit in jujitsu. Uh, you were coming through on a way to a, a bear hunt last spring and came into my uh, where I go to jujitsu, and that was a good time. But it's been a while, and we haven't like caught up for a little bit. So, man, thanks yeah. for hopping on and making time. No, no, thanks for having me on, Ross. I appreciate it, man. 
Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of things that we need to catch up on. A lot of things I want to ask you about because, um, like I said, it's been a while and there's been a lot of stuff happen, um, both yeah. with what you're doing with your coaching, with your social media, and then just like you personally and physically and training wise and a lot of the things that you've done uh, recently, which is really cool. So to kind of find some place to start, I guess, I want to talk about Wild Hunt conditioning and and the page and kind of how it originated. Because like I said, the write-ups that you do, uh, essentially what you do is you take like some cool old video or uh, like an image or something and then highlight a really old style, you know, sometimes hundreds of years old or so training methodology and do a little cool historical write-up on it. So where did that, where did that kind of come into your life as being an interest where you wanted to dive in and learn about the old historical stuff. Cause it seems like now everybody's like, Oh, what's the new thing for this and this and this, whatever, like how's the new methodology working, but you're actually going the other way. <laughs> like what were people doing decades and centuries ago? So as far as where it comes from, it would probably come from my dad. Like I grew up uh, probably like a lot of guys, including yourself, you know, watching tombstone and dancing with wolves and then uh, you know, gladiator and every, you know, everything else. Like I just, I, I've always romanticized and felt a strong connection to past ways, particularly the warrior societies. Um, I, the Spartans were always an enigma. I mean, even in their own time, the ancient authors didn't, you know, it's like they were a, a secret society even in their own time. And so now, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like the more time that goes by, they call it a, what is it? The Spartan romance. And it's, it's essentially all the cultures who have come after Sparta looking back and being romanticizing and feeling fascination with the Spartan culture. Mm. And I have a strong dose of that for cultures like that in general. So I've always been drawn to them and I've always been disappointed, frankly, with how much information I could find or how little information I could find. And that's not a dig at history. I mean, it's just, these are just, just, you know, people who tend to keep their own business. And so it's hard to, hard to know about them hundreds of years after the fact. Um, but so as a result, I dig on any scrap I could find, um, and then I spent a good amount of my early teen and 20 years or my teens and twenties and, uh, incarcerated in various places. And during these times I would kind of cope with that by just reading any and every bit of historical information I could get my hands on. Uh, I'd have my mom send books through the, you know, through the jail, they can, you can do online orders and stuff and they would do soft cover books. They would, you know, search them, but they would pass them on to you. You could have, you know, stuff like that. And that's also where I started, uh, the fitness, you know, it's still to this day, I'm big on calisthenics. I do them more or less every day in some capacity, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, dips, um, nothing crazy, but, uh, just that minimum effective dose. And I, I got in that habit in there. Um, and then that led obviously to other things later on. But as far as the history goes, yeah, that it goes back. I've always felt fascinated. And then, uh, I think, in terms of actual training, it's it's an underutilized resource. I mean, we had thousands, literally thousands of years of data there to observe. Yeah. And I mean, we can see, you can look at the grapplers of ancient India going back the last couple thousand years and what happens when you do insane high volume calisthenics along with, you know, heavy mace training and then, act, you know, all this functional training and, you know, climbing ropes mm-hmm. and rings and pull, you know, it's like you can see what happens. You can see what happens in ancient Greece when they did, you know, all sorts of plyometric jump training and functional strength training and... And then you can also see what are the common threads that you operate through these cultures. And one thing I saw a lot of these cultures doing that not, they've become more popular recently, but 
uh, that not a lot of people today were doing was like weighted carries and different variations. Oh, really? And Interesting. Yeah, because you, if you look, yeah, I mean, the Greeks were big on them. The Indian, like ancient India was big on anywhere you go, even if it was just carrying a stone up a hill. I mean, you watch the Dagestani's train, you know, literally in, uh, in the mountains of their homeland, and they're taking rocks and kettlebells and just running up hills with them. And yeah, and uh, you know, and so this is a few years back when I'm kind of formulating the basis of the wild hunt system and. Uh, fortunately you see a lot more people doing them now. I, I sing their praises greatly. Um, but it was like, you could look for stuff like that. Same thing yeah. with higher volume calisthenics, um, outside of maybe like some very specific CrossFit stuff. And, uh, you know, you weren't, well, and then even in those scenarios, butterfly pull-ups and stuff, you're not seeing a high degree of technicality, sure. but it's like, so a lot of people weren't brute forcing, you know, doing 20 sets of 20 and their squats and pushups and, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's really interesting. So again, it's really yeah. interesting to think like when you're because you mentioned all of, a lot of these were the warrior cultures, right? And then we we look back and we're like, oh man, you know, we have these marble statues of what these guys looked like that probably honestly weren't too yeah. exaggerated in Not what they, you know, um, yeah. maybe a little bit, but there's it's pretty pretty accurate. So we have like this idea of what these guys were built like. And that's like you said, tends to be what we kind of romanticize, especially the Spartans. And then you get the movie 300 coming out and they're all jacked and whatever. So then that becomes like, I want to look like that. But then when you look at how they were training, the reason that they were training was to be warriors. They weren't training to look like that. Like that was just a byproduct of how they lived and the way that they trained and their just general lifestyle. But we tend to not like we, we want to separate those two things. It's like, well, I don't really want to train like that. I just want to look like that. And so I'll do the the muscle specific stuff, more bodybuilding style stuff, which, you know, does work to a degree. But it's like it's really not the same thing in terms of how tough you're becoming, like how disciplined you have to be to like grind through, like you said, crazy volume calisthenics of, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of reps in a workout of like, I, and I know you've probably seen the video, but there's this old the old video, uh, and I can't remember what his name was when he went and trained with Kimura and, uh, back in, I think the fifties or the sixties and Masoyama, one of those guys, I think so. And he went and trained and he's like doing a voiceover and it's showing them all do like Hindu pushups. And he says like in the thing, he's like, sometimes we do it, you know, at a minimum 500 to 600 of uh, Hindu pushups a day, sometimes upwards of a thousand. And I'm just like, people just can't, I mean, that was only, you know, 60 years ago when they were doing that, but that's like ancient practice, you know what I mean? And so the reason for that training, I think we can't separate that from the result of what they look and function like, you know, that was why they were doing it It was like to become freaking killers, you know? So that I, you're literally preaching to the choir. I, I, this is what I say with everything, but your body is going to respond to the specific stimuli and pressures imposed upon it. Okay. And I actually, I prefer to look at training, not as like a bodybuilder's perspective of like deconstruction and reconstruction, but more acclimation to a hostile environment. You know what I mean? I, my body has to be able to withstand these pressures in terms of endurance, in terms of actual physical force, temperature, whatever, whatever you want to, you know? So it's like preparing to live on Krypton as opposed to earth. You know, I've, right. I've always had a, my mind and my body have always responded better to that sort of approach, but your body will, I mean, it, it's a clever thing. It's going to respond very specifically to what it needs to respond to. And if you're sitting there and you're just doing four sets of 10 and Ronnie Coleman workouts and, you know, individuals like 
you're going to pump muscles up for sure, but you're mm-hmm. not going to look lean and, you know, sleek and fast and capable and powerful mm-hmm. all, you know what I mean? You're going to look bulky and sculpted for sure. But if you look at, I mean, yeah, if you look at these, you know, these sculptures, the ancient Greeks, and even if you just look at people who live, you know, live completely dedicated to lifestyle, I mean, there's still sects of grapplers and in, uh, in, in India that live the ancient ways. And you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, none of them are like shredded dice to the gills. They're all lean and strong, you know, but it's Mm -hmm. like, it's a typical masculine build. And yeah, I mean like abs and stuff, you'll see it, but it's like, generally speaking, the body responds to, you know what I mean? It gives you what you need. And, and in that you can, when you say it'll adapt to give you what you need, it'll also adapt to like what you have. Right. And that was one of the things I wanted Mm to ask you about too, because I've heard you talk about it on, on another podcast um, about, and you mentioned it, uh, just now about your time that you spent when you were incarcerated, like you don't have tons of stuff available. Or I mean, maybe, maybe you had more than what most people would think, but like, you don't have a ton of options in terms of what to do or what to use. And so when that becomes really the, the origin point for your love of fitness and all of this stuff or, or pursuing that yourself, like, how did that, how did being in that situation, really kind of start or mold what it ended up becoming for you? So it's interesting because it, it definitely influenced, you, you could even say biased my approach to fitness because mm. it, like, first of all, working out in a situation with, there's no music, there's no front, hot front desk chick. There's no, <laughs> you know, no groups of people to show up. I mean, it's literally you and a bunch of sweaty people in there for murder and rape and whatever else. And uh, there's like, there's no glory. There's, I mean, there's to be able to, like, you have to take a certain more austere mindset and approach to get through. And and when you're doing high volume calisthenics without the dopamine hits and feedbacks of setting PRs on heavyweights and clashing it, and then, you know, beating your chest in there and calling yourself a Viking, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, I mean, it's harder. It's, it's just, it's hard to do 1200 pushups in a day without any sort of payoff, you know? And yeah just like, so yeah, my, my mind still kind of operates like that when I train. Um, but as far as the, at the practical level too, because it's like, I mean, yeah, like sometimes you do curls, like you could think you could get a, uh, there was like a, I don't want to call it a black market, but you could get garbage bags in there generally for making pruno, like, you know, alcohol. And, but we would use them, we'd fill them up with water and use them for weights, you know, oh, generate okay. cur- curls and swings mostly because it's kind of awkward. The water sloshes around a lot, but, um, I do bicep curls to a lot of 21s, you know, which mm-hmm. is old school bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's generally, or I'd hold the bag and do squats, but generally you're just doing the typical body weight stuff. You're doing pull-ups on the back of a staircase or on the door frame, you know, wherever you can get a grip, you're doing uh, rows by, you know, taking a towel, right. You know, wrapping it up and then hanging, you know, wrapping it around a post and doing rows and lots of squats. And then your conditioning is burpees and shadow boxing and that's it. Cause there's no space for anything else. You get creative with the variations of burpees, but other than that, and honestly, I was never too crazy on, you know, on the crazy, like uh, mountain climbing, tri- quadruple pump stuff. I just, I right. do more burpees, more of them or do them faster or with less rest or, you know, and I yeah. mean, whatever. And um, so when you, and so when you're, when you're out then you're probably, like are almost, I would imagine overwhelmed to some degree by like what's available when yeah. you start training again. It's like, dude, I don't, I don't need this. Right. Like I can, I, I've been fine for however long just doing it with basically just my body. Was that kind of what you experienced? It's funny you bring that up because I fell into the, I, I went for the shiny lures. 
Mm. Um, and I was like, Oh, well, I got all this, this, uh, fucking cable machines and all, you know what I mean? All this stuff. And, uh, like I, you know, I was a high school athlete, so I knew like, you know, I knew the basics of like how to move a barbell and whatnot. Sure. But I, uh, so I went out and it, but it was so overstimulating and overwhelming because I was like obsessed with finding like the perfect formula or what, you know, as if such a, I mean, as if such a thing exists to begin right. with. <laughs> right. And, uh, um, and I just got overstimulated. And frankly, I just overtrained a lot trying to do everything all at once, mm. which eventually led to finding a more intelligent way to do it with my current system. Yeah. But uh, the thing that saved me from that overall was just embracing a complete minimalist style of training. Like I went hard with Pavel Tatsulin and the mm. strong first stuff and started researching old Soviet stuff, uh, you know, Soviet grappling strength training and whatnot. And I realized that with the kettlebell and the barbell, if I just limited myself to those two implements, there was pretty much nothing I couldn't do outside of a few like very specific isolation things for prehab or rehab or whatever. Totally. Um, and so I just stuck with that. And to this day, I, those are still my two favorite tools. I like, I, I'm a huge fan of single arm barbell pressing. Um, uh, yes. even if you're just starting with the barbell, cause you know, you get the wrist, but it's just like, uh, I've always like, I like the old strongman stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. So heavy single arm dumbbell pressing is dope, but you get a barbell going and I, I, I before long would like to be able to single arm barbell press 135. That'd be, that'd be a nice That's little gnarly. flex. That would be cool. <laughs> that at, at 100, 182 pounds or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's crazy. It's so fun to watch because um, I've had a couple of guys on the show that uh, that really embrace the the old time strongman stuff from like the early cool. 20th century, late late 19th century. And cool. uh, one of them, James Fuller, did my programming for like maybe four or five months leading up to my first jujitsu tournament last year. And that was all we did was uh, you know, pick four or five movements a day. Um, but they were all always, you know, huge full body compound movements because he, how he always says it was like, well, the reason that these can be so effective is you don't need a rack to use, to get to a back squat. Yeah. You have to learn how to get it to your back with it being on the ground. Right. So there's there's several different ways. Like you can Steinborn and lift it up onto one end, or you can do that's what I do. Yeah. You can do the Jefferson style and like hike it up your back and then pop it up. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways, but like all of those extra things are supporting and building everything else surrounding the the big movement that you're trying to do. But it's just so crazy to go through all of these exercises and really only do like three or four things in a day, but like be so just wrecked like from how my whole body was being used just to get it to a place where I could do the exercise I needed to do. And so like, we're doing tons of single, like with the barbell, single arm, barbell presses, bent presses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like oh, we, yeah. the, the one that was gnarly was we do a lot of like deep lunge, but with that back knee off the ground about an inch. So you're hovering in that lunge okay. yeah, and then yeah. would do behind the neck presses in, oh. in the bottom of the lunge. Oh, that sounds and, gnarly. I've never oh, done that. Stuff like that. Cause, but, but through all of that, it's because of the load you're placing through these ranges of motion, I was getting crazy more mobility out of a lot of these oh, things yeah. too. And it's so fun to like, look back and you see like, well, the, the guys that were doing stuff in, in ancient India or like these guys that were even just a hundred and so years ago, mm-hmm. like they, what they did really built a total system like, you know, you can look at like what who this, maybe one culture was way more endurance based, right? Or whatever. But in terms of like total structure of health, 
and and fitness, they pretty much had it nailed. You yeah. know, like some some cultures, like I said, would have more would be better at certain aspects. Like some were just stronger. Some would have more endurance. But like their systems were like they weren't they weren't lacking really in anything, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Like why this whole thing is why don't we look back more at all of these things rather than where it seems like everybody's history of fitness started was like the sixties with Arnold, you know, like in most modern, like bodybuilding style stuff, it really, and even that, like, you you know, look back even just 10 years before that with like Reg Park and all the guys that Arnold was learning from, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy that we don't do that more with fitness than, than we currently do. I, I agree. Um, I think that it's, uh, complexity is a shiny lure you know and we all want to believe the newest thing is always the best thing but most of this stuff's not new to begin with because we've been around but yeah so i i mean the whole like the you know the wild hunt system the idea was that uh taking the minimum effective dose of the maximum effective methodologies from you know various modalities together and uh so it's like but even still doing all that, like, I don't think I, I don't remember the last time I sit foot in the gym and did more than five movements overall. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I go in, I start with about five minutes of movement, you know, my bear crawls, duck walks, you know, just, you know, dy- you know some dynamic movements, some hops. Yep. Um, I'll do about 10 minutes of calisthenics, pushups, pull-ups, dips, whatnot. I might do like five sets of three, some long jumps or high jumps to kind of excite the nervous system. I'll do three work up to three sets of three at eighty five percent in a compound lift. I'll do some GPP after, usually a form of carry or mm-hmm. a sled or something like that. And then uh, I'll do one or two accessories and be out. You know yeah. what I mean? And mm-hmm. if I need extra conditioning, uh, like that, then and there, I'll do burpees. You know, or sprint yeah. maybe. But it's like, uh, and I I manage to still check every box, and none of this stuff is new. You know, like yeah. none of it. So where did, uh, where did hunting come in for you? Uh, so I've been hunting bear for black bear for 28 years now. Mm. My dad, wow. My family has been hunting bear since Kentucky, since before we came out here. But my dad was the one I grew up hunting with. Um, we ran hounds, uh, blue ticks, red ticks, walker hounds, plot hounds, uh, which is now illegal here in Northern California. But at the time it wasn't when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And so that was, could arguably be kind of where some of the athleticism and endurance comes from. Um, it would probably be, would definitely be frowned upon these days to put your child through what my dad, maybe, you know, <laughs> let me go through with him. There's a lot of, you know, cold freezing foodless nights and mm. we got separated from the hounds or and couldn't leave them out there. Got set, you know, got blocked in vehicles and whatnot. But, um, but they, they were the best memories of my life, you know, and being cold and being, you know, trying to keep up with the hounds through the mountains and run until I could, you know, until I puked were, I mean, yeah. Anyway, they're formative, formative memories and formative mm-hmm. times for me. So <laughs> when I, got back into training and uh got back into kind of reconnecting with all of that i went hard into black bear hunting yeah and the last few years i just with the bow has been my focus uh deer and elk is cool too but i'm it's not you know it's mostly for the meat uh the black bear hunting is what gets me and just 
the hunting predators is, gives me just a little bit different of a thing. And they, they think back at you. So it's, you know what I mean? It's right. not like, Hey, I'm going to move patterns and call them into position. And you know, maybe it will, or maybe it won't. It's like this thing is interacting with me, you know, right. and it's, it's, I'm not black bears, you know, to be completely honest, black bears aren't too much of a th- direct threat in terms of like direct attack. Like if you're out there and you, you get torn apart, it's more likely going to be the wolves that got hungry or got curious or a mountain lion that just, you triggered the wrong instinct at the wrong time. You know, the black bears mostly they're, I mean, they're dangerous as shit and mm-hmm. uh, arguably the most dangerous thing out there one-on-one, but they're also introverted and kind of just want to be left alone. Yeah. But they're clever. They're as smart as anything. And, uh, so it's, it's just a different game, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I like hunting any excuse to be in the woods with a bow or a rifle is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, that just, that's my thing. And then I have the, you know, the familial and nostalgic connection to sure. hunting black bear specifically. As you start to train for it, what have you noticed that, uh, how hunting affect, I mean, does, does what you do and how you hunt, also affect what you're doing training if so like what are the things that pull from that specifically into what you train for so the truth is i don't actually alter my training too much because a good hunter is kind of in line with what we were talking about earlier my idea our idea of what you know a functional warrior uh, yeah. slash hunter in a historical tribe or culture would be like uh, you need a strength speed endurance durability you know all these things in conjunction without being overly specific you know you know specific in one but uh, the weighted carries definitely helps. Running yeah. ultra marathons definitely helps. You don't need to run ultra marathons to hunt. The thing is, I live at more or less sea level, and when I'm up there with you guys, I mean, just hanging out with you is three, four thousand, you know, three thousand feet or whatever. Where yeah. you know, and then it's like if I go up hunting, it's six or seven, you know, when yeah. I'm in the Boise National Forest and up there. So uh, I'm of the belief that it's like some guys will get very specific with trying to do like elevation training and stuff, and yeah. I think really the only way is to live there and train there for a few weeks, get used to it. And so I don't waste time with any of that. I just build a big enough cardio base that if I take a massive hit going up in elevation, I can still keep on ticking, you know? Yeah. So that's one reason I like to have a a good, you know, high VO2 max as well as just a broad, very broad and very consolidated overall aerobic base and a lot of joint integrity in my lower body. Yeah. The endurance thing is obviously something that I want to talk to you about because that's, been a big uh a big thing for you and then you've done i mean off the top of my head two just bonkers endurance things uh recently that i wanted to ask you about the first one uh was the day that you did was a 500 pound deadlift and then a 50 mile run on the same day right yeah so i pulled it ended up being i hit 500 and it just flew up too easy um (laughs) And so I went back for 520 and pulled that. And also I was uh, being spotted by Andre Milanchev, who is one of the greatest, you know, mm-hmm. in the conversation and for the greatest power lifter who's ever lived. And so that was, I was kind of in the moment and it was kind of hard not to, you know what I mean? It felt kind of like bump it up a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, ended, I came back the next week and pulled 540, but I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, but I was like that day. And again, this was what your, your one, 180 ish, 181, like okay. exactly yep. 181. So I think it came out to a big triple body weight or right, right about triple body weight. Yep. Um, and it was only the third time I'd ever pulled sumo to that day. Oh, Okay. I, I always just pulled conventional. And then one day yeah. I was in there and Mark was like, Hey, do you ever like, you got really long legs and kind of limbs. You ever try sumo? You kind of look like you might be bunching your pole a little bit. And I was like, uh, no. And, uh, he gave me like a quick little 
Mark Bell gave me a quick little sumo private. Mm-hmm. And then Andre worked with me two more sessions and that day I came in and I was like, okay, let's just try that. You know what I mean? The, yep. It was just, it didn't feel natural or smooth, but the weight just came up easier. So I was like, okay, let's go with that. That's and awesome. then, uh, yeah. So that's like my pull, my conventional pull is like about five, whereas my like sumo is more mid fives. Sure. But the, uh, so I did that. I did a little bit too much. I thought it would be kind of good to do some back offsets because there wasn't really any valuable data out there for like how to best do this thing. Obviously, you want to lift the weight first and not run an ultra first and try to lift the yeah. weight. Yeah. But beyond that, like, hey, how much back off work do you do? How much cool, you know, how do you transition? Like, there wasn't really any data. I didn't know of anyone who'd done anything like it. Yeah. So I just kind of did some back offsets and did like some kind of cool downs and whatnot. And then in retrospect definitely did too much mm. um because i was walking out of the gym on shaky legs and then that was right when the ultra started oh it was um, right away like there wasn't really a we drove of time. we drove no we drove directly to the starting point which is about like 27 minutes away or something like that oh my. so you had a half hour basically from Denver yeah and i didn't want yeah and i didn't want that lag because i didn't want my legs to come down you yeah. know i mean i didn't want that uh, post fucking leg day because it was a legit <laughs> right. at the end of when it, when it was done, it was not just a max, but a legit leg day between the warm ups <laughs> and the cool down and the back off sets. And I was like, I'd do it differently for sure going back. Yeah. But um, so went out. Uh, I live in a town or like a small city outside Sacramento called Roseville. Mm-hmm. And that is near a lake called Folsom Lake. And uh, they have a bunch of trails out there. And there's the American River. So there's a bunch of trails in the area, long story short. And I had already pre-plotted exactly a 50 mile loop. It was like a loop and a half the way it came out. Yeah. And, uh, so I just started from, and just head out. Oh no, I ate about eight ounces of leanish steak, like a flank steak, I believe it was. Okay. And uh, like half a pineapple and then head out. Um, and I had everything all ready. So I just kind of you know, changed out my socks and shoes and headed out. Mm. I, uh, I don't, in retrospect, I don't know why it's like one of those silly amateur things you do and you don't really know, you know, you're not even really aware of it, but I wore shorts that I hadn't worn before. Ah. And, uh, like two miles in, they were cha- like just for whatever reason, we was chafing brutally. Mm-hmm. So my, uh, my fiance had to like pull up alongside a car that was like uncomfortably close to a high school. And I had to hop in the back seat and change my shorts out real quick. I just was hoping no one, you know, I wasn't going to get like fucking, you know, Megan's listed. And, (laughs) and, uh, but it got, it got off, pulled it off. Uh, and then I just got back to it running and, um, it was good. I, I like, I felt amazing. The, uh, I kind of got a little carried away with my pace because I felt so good. And I cranked out a couple like eight minute miles mm. when I was trying to think, you know, hold more like a 10 ish pace. Sure. Um, so the first 38 miles flew by, I was smoking fast. Um, and then I fucked up and I had again, an amateurish thing. I know better. I sat down too long to change out my socks mm. and, uh, and by too long, I mean about 90 seconds or two minutes, literally as long as it takes you to change socks and my legs just locked up. Um, if it had just been running, it wouldn't have been an issue for such a short time, but with the deadlifting, it, you know, yeah. and yeah. so that last 12 miles was real grindy, man, mm. real grindy. Uh, it actually ended up taking me just as long, right about just as long to run the last 12 as the first 38. No way. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, bro. It was bad. Uh, I was like, I finished like 1340. So, you know, like it wasn't fa- like I was on track to be at like an 11 hour finish originally. <laughs> and then, uh, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then, 
So, uh, but I mean, it's the way of things. And yeah. I, you know, I wasn't trying to set any speed records. I was just kind of yeah. trying to do something. And I, it's also like, it, it took me about nine months of training to get to that goal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I remember thinking, uh, and I remember thinking like someone who could do both of those things would be so, like so formidable. And then I remember doing it and not feeling formidable at all. And just being like, uh, this, this is one of In those the immediate things that, aftermath. Like yeah. this is so dumb. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm like, what are you doing? No. And yeah. And it towards the end, that's the thing too. It's like, like with some people, it's like the, the pain gets them or the doubt or something. But for me, it's like, it's like the self reflection It's like, dude, is this, is this completely pointless and stupid? Like, are you out here just kicking cement for no, like, you know, literally for no reason. So I just try to turn the logic off until it's over. I'll go, we'll, we'll We'll think about this when it's done. <laughs> That's hilarious. Do you know of anyone yeah. who's tried it since after they saw you do it or something? No. Has there been a people, second attempt anywhere? No, I don't think so. Uh, well, another guy tried like a slightly reduced volume. I think he was going for like 405 and 40 or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. And I don't – last I heard from him, he hadn't done it yet, but he was preparing to. So I should actually see if I can find that message and check back. So did you um, have but I've had a, a few people ask. Did you have a uh, – training program that you built for this or was it like I'm just going to train how I train and see how well I do knowing I can probably like I know I include all this in my training already I'm going to see how it goes or did you have like a training program you built for nine months prior uh kind of both uh but yeah we have a training program and it's like we have it up for sale for anyone who wants to is interested in it we also there's a whole documentary about the the uh, Wolf and Bison, a deadlift ultra marathon documentary. It's free on YouTube. Uh, it talks about a lot of the programming too. You don't have to like buy the program to find out. If you're just curious, just go check out the documentary. It talks about all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we do it. I, I call it the Atlas Blueprint now because uh, you know Greek gods and all that. The yep. strength and endurance combination of Atlas. Yep. It seemed appropriate. But all all it is is it's really just the exact same blueprint I used to train. Like yep. I didn't have to write anything. I mean, I spent all of that time finding the right balance, which again, for anyone listening, it came out to, I lifted three days a week, you know, essentially powerlifting split, you know, bench squat, deadlift days, um, accompanying accessories for each. I would run once a week, uh, long 20 to 35 miles, somewhere in there. Uh, it started out with smaller runs being wherever, you know, literally three mile, two, three mile runs that I could fit in wherever I could in my schedule throughout the mm-hmm. week. And then over time those consolidated into a single run, you know? So it's like, if I wanted, let's say I wanted to get to the, to get to the point where I was running 30 miles and one to, you know, one 30 mile run per week. It's like, maybe you start with two or three, three mile runs. And then you're doing three, 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 three to five mile runs, you know, and then once the volume more or less is kind of comparable to what you'd like to be overall, you start consolidating those runs into an individual session slowly. So gotcha. four sessions to three to three to two, et cetera. And so over time, it just got to the point, you know, and also just, just like with lifting weights, like once you have a solid base, it takes a lot less to maintain that base than it does to acquire it in the first place. Right. You know what I mean? Right. A lot less volume overall. And then it's like, uh, and then I'd sprint once a week and ruck once a week. Nothing crazy. Oh, okay. Used to ruck as yeah. more of a little bit of strength training and endurance, but mostly active recovery. Usually yep. do it after a squat day, you know, something like that. And then I do jits two to three times a week. Nice. Do you uh, still do you have like so as far as the endurance piece went? Is there when you're done with this event? Is there like a minimum amount or base level of whatever that was at the peak of the training? You know, right before you compete this or complete this event, you come back off, you're obviously not training at that same 
volume and, and right. load and all that kind of stuff. But like just for your health and like I need this as a baseline, do you keep like a minimum amount of that endurance built into your weeks or do you just cycle that through different points of the year or anything like that? After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint. So, I actually have the opposite problem and when I'm coming off the peak, I want to stay there. Uh, I know it's not going to end well. I know I'll get injured and burned up, but I still just, I want to ride that. Like it's the drug addict thing. Again, I want to ride that wave as long as I can. Yeah. So I have to forcibly pull myself back. Gotcha. Having said that, I still, to this day, you know, 52 weeks a year, I like one long run a week. Okay. Um, it, if I do a light 20 miles and I don't like push the pace super hard or pick super difficult terrain, it doesn't take me much to recover. It really does. I yeah. mean, you know, it's like, I won't want to go fucking to max, you know, do hella wrestling rounds the next day or anything like that. If I can help right. it, I mean, I would, but, but it just, it doesn't at this point. Uh, yeah. I do, I warm up properly. I cool down properly. I do support stuff. I do banded ankle stuff, uh, for both my tibs and my calves and ankle mobility, I do my knees, my hips, my back. I eat plenty of food. I get my electrolytes. I prioritize quality sleep. And yeah. the next day I'm, I'm good to go, you know, mm-hmm. again, I'm not going to squat heavy if I can help it. I'm not going to do any crazy hard sparring if I can help it. But other than that, so I, that's the one thing I haven't really, I don't plan on shaking. I, I pretty much more or less play, you know, yeah. and I, I, it makes my, you know, my joints feel good. And I think, you know, well, I think that's maybe the misconception too, that a lot of people have about doing long stuff and like the, the long state slow runs, you know, multiple tens of miles or whatever it is, is like, well, aren't you just going to be beat up all the time? And there will be an answer that is yes, but it's yes. If you're, you're not doing all of these other things, like you're talking about with sleep and nutrition and taking care of your body and in the pre and the post of the training, but then also just like running mechanics in general, like if you have terrible, crappy running mechanics and your heel striking super hard and your hips are all over the place, yeah, you're going to feel freaking beat up because oh, that yeah. is not the most efficient path for load to go through joints. I mean, like there's a reason that uh, and then even to tie it kind of into the next event that you did. But like there's this whole culture of what we're at the time and still there's some of them now like persistence hunters. 
Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. like their whole, oh, yeah. their whole thing is like, we will run until an antelope gets tired. Yeah. Like imagine how insane that sounds like that you Wait. can, that you can outlast an antelope. Like humans can do that. And like humans can do that. That's why we're bipedal. You know, like we have, we're, we're more endurance machines than we are like brute, you know, short, powerful things. Like we're actually built more as endurance machines and so it's crazy. You're, you're speaking my language. Okay. In so many ways. Uh, <laughs> you said like three things there that all just, they, they positively <laughs> triggered me um, the, to start. Uh, and the last thing to, to end out, like with the humans, you should resistance train. Are you resistance training? Cause if you're doing that, your body's going to deal with running because it's impacting the earth, you know? So yeah. anyway, but as far as yeah, persistence hunting, that is, it's like my, the, the one childhood fantasy I, as an adult have not let go of. I, I want, I, I literally just, I want to like, just, just catch like a, catch a deer or a bear just, and just have him break and, you know, panic and head to open ground. And me just be like, all right, here we go. You know, <laughs> Game time. The, yeah. You've been, you've been, you've been preparing for this in your head for, for years. Um, but no, humans can, we like, don't get it twisted. A human being is the best endurance hunter on the planet. It's the best mm-hmm. endurance athlete on the planet. Like a wolf, very amazing, real good out to marathon or so. A mm-hmm. horse, real good out to 15, 20 miles, you know, if you push it, that they might die. But, like, there's actually races, what is it, Britain? There's, I believe, still a race in Britain or Scotland, Scotland where men or horses can enter. And sometimes men win. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a super long, it's not an ultra. I mean, like, you give me 50 miles to run a horse down, I'm, I'll run it down. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. But I know, I wish I could remember the name, but it's it's like, and occasionally the men win. Like, that's, you know, so... <laughs> We are the best endurance hunting. You know, we have sweat glands. We're bipedal. We don't, you know, we're not covered in hair. Everything is set up for us. We, mm-hmm. well, even looking at the way our body treats endurance training, it prioritizes it like the endurance adaptations over strength adaptations. Sure. Like AMPK, it overrides mTOR. You know, like AMPK is the essentially just to oversimplify things, the the endurance building hormone whereas mTOR would be the muscle building hormone right it's like if you do both those work you know both those workouts in the same proximity it went you know the the mTOR loses and the ampk wins because we are at our heart endurance creatures mm-hmm. um so i like you know kind of going back to the krypton thing i think about how do you like survival in terms of what traits make an organism more likely to survive a hostile environment or an adverse uh, event or whatever. And endurance, endurance and resilience are going to be at the top of that list every time. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, adaptability wins every time. Like yeah. overall, can you, you know, can you live as a vegan, a carnivore in the Arctic, in the desert, whatever, like that's the most important thing. Yep. But endurance and resilience seem to be more, much more relevant than strength. You know, overall, you need strength again. I, but yeah. I think being that complete organism, endurance is just a, a part of that puzzle that can't be replaced. It kind of seems like there would be a point of, and maybe not with strength, but maybe with building muscle as it relates to the survival analogy that we're giving. Like there would be a point of diminishing returns as it comes to muscle. Yeah. You know, for sure. There really isn't when it comes to endurance. Like no, you're, that's a good point. You're always going to continue to be effective the more endurance you have. Like there's not I don't think there's going to be a point where that is going to diminish your ability to survive. You know yep. what I mean? Like that's just going to oh, no. enhance it more. 
Well, also, in, yeah, I mean, like muscle is an expensive resource too. Yeah. So like that, that's a really interesting point, Russ. I've actually never thought about that, but you're, I think you hit it on the head. And then, especially if you're in a, like in terms of survival in a region with elevation, because I can't really stress that like to people who haven't been a cardio monster at sea level and then gone to elevation and mm-hmm. seen what it robs from you. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's profound. So, well, it's crazy because uh, when, it, you know, I did, uh, I, I competed in track in, in college and I was on the sprint side of things, uh, until I became a decathlete. And then the one, the one distance event is a 1500 meter race oh, yeah. at the end, yeah, yeah. which isn't distance really, but at the end of, at, it, after two days and nine events, like it's pretty rough, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. uh, but when you're, when you're looking at times, like there's always altitude adjustments on times because of where they were ran. And right. so like when you're ranking ranking guys to like go to this meet and they have to hit a certain time or whatever, depends on where they ran it. And then there's some sort of algorithm depending on like what the elevation was um, where they make like a time adjustment. Like, because if it's here, if they ran it in Denver, right? Like if they, if they ran a, a crazy fast time in Denver, you might drop like, they might cut like six seconds off that time for the altitude right. adjustment because right. of what you would actually be able to run at sea level, you right. know? And so, and that's why like all the nationals, all the national meets and all that stuff are always like the one for us, we were NAIA college. So not like a big, you know, big university, all that kind of stuff. But the track nationals were in Gulf Shores, Alabama every year. And so like literally right on the Gulf and sea level, right? Sea level. But like, that's where they always are is like usually something where there's not going to be a crazy amount of altitude adjustment. Um, But it's, it's so interesting to know like how much that affects what you're actually capable of just from, just from altitude alone. Yeah. I mean, and not just your endurance, but your fine motor control, your decision-making, you know, the mental clarity, like all those things. And uh, again, you know, hunting in the mountains, especially in, you know, weather conditions go against you. It like all that stuff really matters because the, yeah. you know, the price you pay is, is going to be greater. Yeah, seriously. So, uh, let's transition into the other really oh, cool yeah. thing that you just did not too recent or not too long ago, I should say. Um, because it's the next documentary. Is the, is it out yet? Is that released or no. is that coming up soon? Yeah, it should be out this spring sometime. Okay. I, uh, so you did, it was just a crazy amount of running again, but I want you to like describe what it was first and then tell me how that came to be. So I did a self-supported run, which means no, uh, outside interventions or supplies outside of water being planned along the route. Uh, I did a run of 116.2 miles with 35 pounds in a pack on my back in just over 33 hours. It came out to, I think, 33 hours, four minutes and 18 seconds or something. And that's like that. not even the crazy part of this, by the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> not, well, nonstop. Yeah. Without yes, stopping. Nonstop. Once. <laughs> so this no checkpoints, no rest points, no, not in a single point in time, slowing beneath three miles an hour. So I maintained a pace of, that was the, the internal goal, or the goal was to stay up between three and four miles an hour, above three miles an hour, and then just for, to stay moderate below four mm-hmm. um, without, ever stopping once. And that part of it actually was a little easier than I thought it was. To just uh, keep going. You mean, yeah. Like, Cause I would I mean, imagine be- the start, the, the constant, maybe not constant, but like you'd mentioned on the last one where you had to stop and change your socks, like those yeah. moments where you stop probably make it harder to get back again. 
so what I realized it, it you can for sure if you break momentum, but what I realized was I had been using the rest points and typical ultra marathons and the structure as a, uh, I don't want to say a crutch cause they're a necessary part of the process, but they were kind of like comfort zones and havens. And it's gotcha. like, it was more like crawling from one to the next, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so when I stripped those away, it was like a sense of freedom mm. that I hadn't really felt or anticipated before that I really liked. And I had already spent, you know, three weeks acclimating myself to running, pissing and even shitting on the move. So, um, I kind of like, you know what I mean? I, it, my body was pretty used to that part of it. And so mm -hmm. it's like, and then the, like when you're going, you still try to observe kind of the natural rhythms of your day. Like, uh, it's breakfast time. So you're going to eat a little more than you would at the top of the hour, you know, when you're normal. Oh, that's the other thing too. Like you, do your best to maintain certain caloric uh, and fluid in intake requirements, electrolytes too. For me, I just tried to ma rough, maintain roughly between two and 300 calories and eight grams of protein per hour, about 16 ounces of fluid with a corresponding electrolytes. Mm -hmm. um, what were you eating? Like what was, was it just all gel based kind of stuff? Or no, no, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of stuff. Like I like real food. Um, okay. a I, I was hazelnuts and macadamia nuts mm -hmm. were, and then, uh, Pout, like uh, actual pouches of peanut butter that I could just squeeze in my oh, mouth yeah, like yeah. that. Those are so good. I love Those peanut butter. Great. I love nuts in general. Um, and I, this was the first time I'd done this, but I like it with a mix of guava juice and whey protein. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, so that was, that was a pretty efficient way to get both protein and carbs. And yep. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I did, I bring a couple tailwinds with me, which are like little electrolyte the protein packs, uh, but mm -hmm. they use mostly whole food sources and coconut sugar and stuff like that. I just don't really like to rely on that stuff too much. Mm -hmm. um, what else did I do? I don't really do, I'm mostly like a more paleo stuff. I don't eat gluten. So uh, in the past I've done like uh, tortilla, like peanut butter and honey tortillas yeah. or uh, burritos and whatnot, but I stay away from that stuff now. Um, yeah. Oh, a lot of dehydrated fruit, obviously. Oh, okay. Yeah. And your typical trail stuff. And then, uh, candy bars, like I brought, you know, some Snickers and just some fun stuff because mm -hmm. you get pretty, honestly, you get sweet fatigue pretty quick with all the carbs you have to keep eating. Yeah. So it's like, at least throw something a little different in there, you know, sure. and, yeah. and then you create little mental rewards for, oh, Hey, or not even rewards, but like things to look forward to. Oh, Hey, hour after next, uh, you know, Snickers hour. And then you're, you know, <laughs> nice, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I still try to absorb the normal rhythm. So it's like, yeah, maybe if it's breakfast time, I'm going to eat a little more than I would or have some, you know what I mean? Something mm -hmm. or have a Snickers set aside to, you know, kind of delineate that. And it's like in the morning when I wake up, I like to meditate for 10 minutes. So it's like when the sun rose, I'd take that 10 minutes and just kind of be like a moving purposeful, you know, mm -hmm. thinking prayer, meditation, whatever, you know? And, uh, so you just kind of normalize it because this was like in past ones, I've generally kind of taken like the more Goggin style psych yourself up and get, you know what I mean? Fire up. And this time I went pretty hard in the opposite direction. Mm. I just kind of stayed empty and I didn't think about it. I didn't attach thought or judgment to it. Is there and a reason for that? Like the reason you wanted to make that change? It was part, I would be lying if I said it wasn't conscious partially, but I really just kind of felt kind of where I was at in my personal, you know, as a person, I was kind of just in a different place than I had been. And mm -hmm. I was more at peace with things and I didn't really feel 
that I had to, honestly. Yeah. Maybe it was just a belief in myself that, hey, and it's not that I was coasting, don't get me wrong, but it yeah. was just, I'm, I've always found it valuable to be able to do high intensity things physically or whatever and still, you know, stay mentally calm. And so it's like, I just didn't feel like I needed to fire myself up to hit that peak zone and stay there. I just thought I could do that and kind of go with it and observe it and take as more of a Zen approach. But I was pretty influenced by the, uh, the Japanese monks that do uh, the ultra marathon monks of Japan who live, it's a sect of monks that live, they go back about a thousand years in the mountains of Japan. And they, uh, believe that if you do a seven year ultra marathon, which is essentially doing like, I think they do a hundred marathons every year for the first couple of years and then 200 marathons a year, but it's just like insane stuff. And they do it all in ro woven rope sandals. Um, and they believe if you can complete the seven year challenge that you become like a living Buddha or a living, you know, something akin to a living Buddha that gotcha. essentially enlightenment. And I could see how you'd be pretty enlightened if you can, you know, after an experience like that, a lot of guys die doing it. Like, I guess there's graves that dot their whole, the whole path along the way from the last wow. centuries of people trying. Yeah. But, um, so that I thought about that and I had heard one of them speaks. It's only been done, uh, completed by two since world war two. Oh and, goodness. uh, one of them was like, relatively recently so it was kind of a big deal yeah and so i was listening to him talk about it and uh he there was he didn't have to psych himself up and mm -hmm. you know and so i was like well that's interesting obviously i don't have the the mental powers of a, of a japanese monk but if you know if he can do it then i can definitely get through this and then i reminded myself that like realistically like you can call it a world record but there was most likely like a girl in the holocaust who was running away from you know an army that did something more and, you know, probably did it faster with less resource. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like, yeah, keep, keep things in perspective at the end right. of the day. Right. Um, when that ironically helped me because it was like, you're gonna be just fine. You'll be all right. Your feet yeah. hurt. You got some stress fractures and some other stuff, but it's like, I don't need to scream my way through this. I mean, you know, it's going to, the time's going to come and it's going to wash over me and carry with me or it's not. And that's going to be that. So when you're having those, I mean, I met, and this is one of the common things I've heard from the guys that do the ultra style endurance stuff is just the, the range of thought and emotion yeah. that happens throughout a race or a run or whatever it is of crazy distance. And I don't really know like what distance that is where that those things really start to take effect. But I mean, you mentioned things like that. I was going to ask about, you know, how do you stay wanting to drive forward on this, but it, you kind of answered it a little bit there, but like, what were some of those, like, what was that range of thought and emotion like for you during the different periods of that run? Cause how, I, I don't remember if you, did you just say how long it actually took you to do the whole thing? Yeah, it was like 33, 33, 33 hours, hours and four yeah. minutes right about. Yeah. So that's a lot of time to just think in your own head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Night <laughs> nights, particularly honestly, like it might be more prudent of me to like really hype this side of things up and claim hardship and martyrdom. But it's not the things that things in ultra running that really are, seem to be difficult for most of the other people, even higher level ultra runners. It don't, they don't, I just, I don't know. They just don't seem to bother me as much. Um, quite the opposite actually. Like that's why you see me now recently just switched to solo ultras you don't need to give me a medal. You don't need to give me company or competition or sponsorships or deals or perks or free travel to get me to run 150 miles. Like I'll just, I'll do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, so I, I, 
I don't mind being alone. I much prefer it. Now I've written that I really, you know, that I've done a few like this because it's the freedom and the liberty and the sense of wonder and the, the feeling of having one foot in this world and one foot in some other undefined place that draws me in. It's not, you know, it's not like I have to endure that to get through that, to get, you know, like that's why I'm here, man. Like it really is. And maybe that's kind of naive and like the naive sense of childish wonder that I still kind of hold for some of these ideas, but that's, that's what draws me. And that like, you know, that's, that's the pull for me. Do you think that's something that can be developed or do you think that's just something that you've kind of always had as kind of the way that you are, that you tick, you know what I mean? I think it's both. I mean, I mm-hmm. think like anything else, you're dealing with some nature and some nurture. Yeah. I've always like, even from like, as a toddler, I'm told I was hard headed and independent and I always just wanted to be left alone and kind of off, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but also hyper task focused on individual thing, even to self-destructive potentials or uh, levels. But, um, but also it's just might know that, yeah, experience has definitely played a part in that. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, if other people were able to kind of, maybe shift some of the perspectives they could kind of embrace. I don't want to say embrace the suck because everyone uses that term, but just <laughs> realize that maybe the suck doesn't suck so much as you first think it does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's stimuli. I mean, there's hot, there's cold, there's, you know what I mean? It's like anything yeah. else. And, you know, but I, I think a lot of it is just our brain, our teachers, our upbringing, everyone taught us to be repelled by pain. And I mean, yeah, definitely don't run towards it inflicted unnecessarily. Don't inflict it on other people at all. If you can help it. But as far as enduring things like, you know, your feet are broken or your, you know, I mean, your legs hurt or what, you know, whatever it is, you're going to be all right, you know, and you're not here for very long. You don't get very much experience on this planet, on this earth, on this plane, whatever you believe in. So, I mean, it's like, wouldn't you want to explore as much of that as you could? Absolutely. The, and you, and you had mentioned in the middle of that run, how you were thinking, you know, like there's probably some like you said, some girl that was in the Holocaust that did what you did faster or longer, you know, that nobody ever, like there's probably dozens or more of people that have done something similar to what you did that nobody will ever know about. Oh yeah. And and, and in much harsher conditions for true like survival purposes, you know, and having that perspective, I think is, it, it's definitely, because I'm thinking like, in that moment, there's probably few things that have like physically hurt worse, you know, like than some of the things in that moment, or even like mentally, where you might just be in a in a phase where you're like kind of in maybe a darker place with your thoughts and not not you specifically, but just people that are like, in those long runs, you reach I've heard from countless guys, like there's some times where I was in some dark thoughts, you know, just because I was alone with my thoughts for the first time in years. And I was there by myself for 24 hours, you know? And so in that moment, you're like, this is pretty terrible. But then you, you, you zoom out and you have this perspective that was like, I chose to do this. Like, you know, this is, this is a decision I made. I trained for this. I'm doing this because I want to do it. Like there, I'm not running from, from danger or for my life or to save someone else or, you know, so there's a little bit of, I mean, I can do, you know, that that's motivating in itself. Or like, I can do this. You know, I chose to do yeah. this. Yeah. It, uh, you, I mean, more than that, you get to do this, yes. you know, 
I mean, not, you know, not just you're able-bodied, you're this, but you're in a position where life is so easy that you have to go out and create very elaborate ways to create basic survival stimuli. You know, it's no different than a cold plunge or a fast or anything else. Like these are natural things that we now have to simulate just to be, reach some sort of homeostasis as, you know, human beings. So, I mean, again, perspective, but it's also nice to know that if you have to, you could, you know, chase someone down over a hundred miles and, you know, to, you know, or run, you know, or do whatever you had to do. Oh, I had my mic. Oh, there we there go. We go. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I was going to say, I, I think I can imagine why for you anyways, this, this challenge where you took this opposite approach and like you said, more, a little bit more Zen of an approach, you probably could because you've known for however many years now you've built up this capacity where you're like, I know that in a survival zone of this, like if this goes south, I'm still going to be fine because I've built up all of this capacity and, and all this work that I've done for decades now. So that gives you some cushion on your capability where you like, yeah, I'll do things that are maybe pretty wild and crazy because I know that even if it goes bad, I'm still going to be okay because I've done all of this work prior. Yeah. Well that, and it's like also the pain current, like I've spent, I'm not exaggerating. If you were to like on some total, I've spent years of my life in heroin withdrawal. Mm-hmm. you know like years mm-hmm. uh so in terms of just like that's suffering for nothing like nothing and yeah. you realize pretty quick there's a huge difference between suffering for something and suffering for nothing mm-hmm. and so if i'm paying that price you know in my feet and my knees and my back and my mind and everything whatever else while i'm on the trail like i'll happily pay that because i'm getting you know the returns on that the, just that experience alone and what in there i don't mind it that much yeah. And I've felt worse, quite frankly. And I think you do probably see, I know, like I know rape victims and drug addicts, you do see a lot of them kind of end up in the ultra space because I think it does more. It's not even just a tough thing. I think it's just a perspective realignment, you know. Mm. That's an interesting so, way to look at it. Because I was thinking too, I was, you know, having gone through a lot of the things that you did earlier in your life really is what is is probably the foundation for a lot of those perspective shifts that you have doing all of these incredibly ridiculous physical challenges, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And you know, it's, it is what it is, but I I think it's just, it's, we all, you know, our experience is what dictates our compass and our compass Mm -hmm. is what dictates what we think we can do. And like I said, on, you know, on doing this last one, I showed that even I had been shortchanging myself Mm. and, uh, so it's like, you know, I'm currently considering where we go, where we go from here, because now I know that I'm capable of some, some stuff that far exceeds even that. And, uh, so I'm going to just kind of, for now, we're going to get the documentary out on that. We're doing a little book, um, writing a book, an ebook, or it'll be probably a first digital release book on just a history of physical cultures. Won't be training oh, nice. stuff. It'll just be yeah. culture, you know, the Rara Murray running tribe of Mexico, the Spartans, gladiators, yep. individuals, Muhammad Ali, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, once I can get that out, then I'm going to start planning the next challenge and see what's up. And do also you have at any some ideas point, already, like, do you have kind of an idea of where you want to go or are you still kind of waiting to see what, what you're going to come up with? I have a rough idea. I don't know if there will be a strength element or an added weight element or anything gotcha. like that, but I, I would like to do some stuff ranging like really, really long. Um, yeah. Like hundred plus and, type stuff. 
Yeah, I'm definitely. It, I don't think you'll see me do anything south of 100 again. I really like that other side that you know I felt uh, I had done 100 before, but it was not anything like this. And that that was it was earlier on in my running career, so mm-hmm. it took me a lot longer. Um, so uh, I, I would like to at some point do a 200. I would also like to uh, lift the Denny Stones at some point, you know, down oh, the line, but. Yeah. I think they say once you can deadlift about six sixty, they'll give you know they'll give you the time of day to let you have an attempt or apply for an attempt. So I'm not quite there yet, but <laughs> that would be kind of cool. That'd um, be wild. Yeah, yeah. So you know, at some point, maybe when uh, I'm a wealthy old man, I can just kind of travel the world to these old archaeological zones and try to replicate things that you know, as a you know, an old silverback. That would be but, I would I would absolutely pay for a Netflix subscription if that was a season of a show of you tra- of you traveling to all these uh, eight, like old school places around the world to do all the physical challenges. That is a actually, dope show idea. That'd be dope. All right, well if we launch that you can you can come along and you and me. It'll be J- James and Ross global tour. Sweet. Yeah. I love it, dude. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask, you know, cuz we're already at an hour kind of start to close things up. Um, a sure, couple sure. things. One, you've looked at all of these, you know, I'm I'm sure there's probably still some cultures and some things that you haven't even come across yet that maybe not, we don't even know about yet. You know, there's all kinds of stuff throughout history, but with all of the research and stuff that you've done in the previous years and and what you enjoy researching, do you have a favorite based on just how they lived and how they trained and kind of what their lifestyle was? I'd like to say no and that everyone has their own merits and tenets. And that is true to some degree, but Mm -hmm. no one did it better than the Spartans. Mm. I mean, it was absolute and complete dedication, not just at individual level, but the societal level, like structured to just, I mean, everything was taken care of. So a man's only duty was to train his own, you know, his only indoctrination was to serve his family, you know, to do it, you know, honor his family and his nation. And they, uh, I mean, even taking like the patriotic, you know, ideologies aside, just at the personal level, you know, you don't want to talk about monkish dedication and complete yeah. austerity and minimalism. And, uh, and they were, again, they were a big part of the reason I wanted to be able to run because something a lot of people don't know from history, especially with 300 kind of be the late, you know, the late thing, like Spartans could run, like they were, mm. they could run, run for, you know, and, uh, and armor with shield, you know, yep. And, and they can just, how did the movie so, do in your opinion based on what you know about them from research like was the movie accurate enough or was it pretty off base on stuff because i mean it's loosely it's not based off of uh, frank miller's the, graphic novel right it's based off yeah. of, off the graphic novel but the, even the book gates of fire that was pressfield's book like a lot of people think that the movie was based on that book and it's not i mean there were parts that were taken but he did that as research you know and then so you're uh, the narrative around it your, the camera I'm talking to you on is currently resting on Gates of Fire as we speak right now. It's literally right oh, here. Nice. That that sound is me tapping on the cover. Gates of Fire. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Coincidence. Um, so I thought, okay, let's go back. The graphic novel I thought was a pretty excellent interpretation of like a you know a comic you know a comicization of the Spartan yeah. culture based on what we know, right? Right. The movie was essentially an extension of that. So in that context, I thought it did well. You know, I mean, were the was the weapons and armor historically accurate? Mm-hmm. You know, all the tech. No, of course not. But I thought they did a pretty damn good job of capturing the ethos. You yeah. know, yeah, of Sparta and the idea. 
And you really would be hard pressed to go back and dig through all the nitty gritty historical details and find anything that really diverges from the mindset and, you know, the approach there. And yeah, it was, they turned it up a little bit and they made it a little more Hollywood, but overall it, I mean, they, you know, I thought, I thought they did pretty well considering. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I've always wondered, you know, like, I mean, cause I mean, I've read Gates of Fire, but I haven't like, you know, gone back and done a lot of research on the lifestyle of, of them and stuff. So I'm always been curious, like how, because there's so little like really known about them, you know? Yeah. So it's hard to really know how accurate things are, but it's, it's cool that, you know, it did a good enough job. <laughs> yeah. They were very unknown, even to the Athenians that, you know, lived, you know, just in the same nation as them. But uh, Pressfield, it's hard to go wrong with Pressfield because it, oh, yeah. it is a historical fiction book, but that guy did his research, like years oh, yeah. and years of research and reconstruction based off of all sorts of historical data and extrapolations based on real, you know, so it's, yep. I think he, of all the, like, the reconstructions, his is, is the closest and, you know, yeah, it's, again, it's, it's a historical fiction and there's some poetic license in there, but I think he captures all of it really, yeah. really well. I love that. Um, yeah. So as we start to close, man, uh, why don't you give out all of the all of the links and all the places that people can find Wild Hunt and what you're doing, and then the, the movies and all that stuff that's coming out. Right. Yeah. So we just uh, Wild Hunt conditioning on social media, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, actually we're on TikTok now too. Recently. Um, and we have the uh, documentary coming out that we'll talk about or that we'll cover and do all the background and training on uh, how we broke the world running at uh, technically the world weighted running record. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the book too coming out, A History of Physical Fitness and Training by James Pratt. And uh, if you follow us on social media, we'll keep all of the uh, all of these the, uh, announcements up to date. And mm -hmm. uh, those should be coming out this spring, both of those. And you've got training programs and stuff. Oh yeah, as well, yeah, right? programs. Well, just hit us up on Google, and we'll come up or uh, the, check out the links on our social media. We have training programs designed for you know basic fitness. We also have free programs. So if you just want to get on there and get something that's going to cover check all your boxes, and our programs all tend to offer strength, conditioning, and some form of mobility. You know, joint support, joint armor. So uh, whether it's training like an old school fighter, grappling specific stuff, whatever it is, come check us out. Awesome. Well, James, man, thanks for your time. I appreciate catching up and it was good, man. We're gonna have to do it more often. Oh yeah, we will, brother. Anytime you let me know. Yeah. And when you come through again, like let's roll again. We're, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll be, I'll be back in the next couple of months. So I'll, I'll reach out once I have, uh, once I have that figured out. Awesome, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, bro. All right, you too, man.